You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you grab that and go with me to the book of Colossians? Colossians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. Just a reminder, today's a communion Sunday. If you didn't pick up your communion elements on your way into worship this morning, you can sneak back there and grab those now as we are uh, opening our Bibles together. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room and some ESV scripture journals containing Colossians and Philemon, which is what we're going to be studying for several more weeks. You're welcome to uh, take one of those now or after worship is over today. If you're willing and able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for His people, so listen carefully to these words contained in Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are in a series going through Colossians and Philemon, two of the Apostle Paul's captivity epistles, letters that he wrote from prison. And last week we started looking at this same passage, Colossians 1, 24 to 29, but there's so much in this passage, especially in verse 24, that I decided to make this a two-part message. So we're back at it today. Now last week we began with the question, if it were up to you, Would you choose a life of suffering or a life of comfort and ease? Would you choose a life of suffering if it were offered to you as a gift or a life of comfort and ease? Now perhaps you hear that and you think, that just sounds ridiculous. Choose suffering as if it were something to be desired? And yet, that's how Paul writes of it. It's how he speaks of it in his letters, especially those from prison. Here's an example from one of his other captivity epistles. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you, church, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Granted. That's the language of grace gift, privilege, honor, how can it be a privilege to suffer? That's the paradox we began to explore last Sunday. I'm going to come back into this passage again today. I mentioned last week there are three directives for the church in this passage. Last week we looked at the first one and only the first one. Today we'll look at all three. So we'll get the big picture of this text of Scripture. Three directives for the church. Here they are. 
Paul wants us, the church, to rethink our adversity. That's the first one. We dealt with it at length last week. So if you missed last week, go back to the YouTube channel, the podcast, catch up there. I'll do a quick recap today, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to that or watch it. Rethink your adversity. Secondly, share the mystery. Share the mystery. And then finally, at the end of this passage, move toward maturity. Move toward maturity. These three go together. They work together. I'll show you how as we move through this passage together. First, a quick recap of what we covered last week. Rethink your adversity here in verse 24. Start with just the first part of the verse. Paul writes, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, how can he rejoice in his sufferings? What could possibly be the reason to rejoice in our sufferings? Last week, we brought in some parallel passages, other bits of Scripture that use very similar language, and we assembled three reasons, three good reasons, that Paul could rejoice in his sufferings and that we can rejoice in ours. Here they are. First, because suffering deepens our relationship with God. Suffering deepens our relationship with God. In the Apostle Peter's letter, in 1 Peter, he uses the image of a goldsmith. Gold sometimes is mixed with impurities, and those impurities lessen its beauty, lessen its value, and so the gold must be subjected to extreme heat, the heat of the crucible. And as it is heated, those impurities rise to the surface so the goldsmith himself can skim them away. Suffering is us going into the crucible. We're being heated so that all the impurities mixed with our faith will rise to the surface. All the fear and the doubt, all the pride and the independence so that the goldsmith himself can skim them away. And as a result of that crucible, as a result of the suffering, our faith is deepened, our relationship with God is deeper and stronger than ever before because we come to see, I had no reason to fear or doubt because Jesus was with me all along. I had no reason for pride or independence because I needed Jesus every step of the way. Suffering deepens our relationship with God. That's a reason to rejoice. Second, because suffering uplifts or inspires the people of God. In Philippians 1 that I quoted from earlier, Paul is explaining that as he has been in prison, other believers have heard of his imprisonment and heard of his joy in jail. And that's just strange, right? Jail back then was a lot like jail now in this way. People aren't joyful there. Nobody who's in jail wants to be there. And yet Paul in prison is incredibly joyful. Now we have no reason to think that he had better treatment than anyone else. He suffered just as much as everyone else who was there in that prison. But his attitude was so very different. His words were so very different and people took notice other Christians heard of the report of his suffering, how he suffered well, and they were inspired. Paul even says they were inspired to a greater boldness, a greater sense of courage. They wanted to suffer like Paul suffered. They wanted to suffer well. Friends, we have that same opportunity. Don't waste your suffering. 
Don't waste your suffering. Suffer well. Strengthen the church by the way you suffer with joy. Third, suffering expands and intensifies our witness. In that same passage, Philippians 1, Paul talks about how his suffering, his time in prison, actually gave him the opportunity to share the gospel with the entire imperial guard. His suffering gave him a platform. It increased his influence. Because of the way he responded to his afflictions, people, unbelievers, suddenly began to take notice of him. How could they not? Here he is in jail, suffering, and he's joyful. They began to ask questions. How can you be this way, Paul? Which, of course, opened the door for him to share about the Jesus who gave him such joy. You will have the same opportunity. When you suffer and you suffer well, the grace, the glory of God will shine through you in such a way that it cannot be missed. So these are three reasons, good reasons, that Paul could rejoice in his suffering and that we, church, can rejoice in ours, whatever it might be. Now, in the second part of verse 24, Paul uses a very, very strange expression, very curious expression. We talked about it last week. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, what does he mean when he talks about something lacking in Christ's afflictions? We dealt with this at length last week. We learned that Paul is not talking about the power of Christ. It's not the case that Jesus' suffering on the cross somehow lacked the power to save us, and Paul is going to fill that up. No, he's not talking about power. He's talking about the presentation What is lacking is the presentation of Christ's afflictions, of Christ's sufferings to the ones for whom he died. There are people in your classroom, in your workplace, in our community throughout this world, people for whom Jesus died and they don't yet know it. And so Paul says, I will suffer, I will suffer well with joy in such a way that I will have an opportunity to present the afflictions of Christ, the good news of the gospel to the world, to all those who need to hear this message. Paul is saying, my suffering, my afflictions will be the presentation of the evidence for the power of Jesus, the transformative power of Jesus. That's the opportunity we have when we suffer and by God's grace, suffer well. So rethink. Whatever your difficulty, whatever the affliction you're facing, rethink. God is giving you a great opportunity here. Don't waste it. That's the first directive. Now, moving on. Directive number two, share the mystery. Share the mystery. In the middle part of this passage, Paul is now going to focus on the message that he was called to share and that we are called to share. 
Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul speaks here of this stewardship that he has, this commissioning. He was commissioned as an apostle. He saw the risen Jesus. And the risen Jesus gave Paul a unique mission, a unique authority to be an apostle, one of the sent out ones to proclaim the gospel to the world, the known world at the time. That was his stewardship. And then notice he goes on to explain the message that he's proclaiming, the word of God. He describes it as a mystery. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. It's interesting. You saw that same word mystery if you were listening in the kids' time earlier in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians and Colossians, this is one of Paul's favorite ways to describe the gospel. It's a mystery. A mystery now revealed. We love a good mystery, right? There's something about a mystery that just hooks us. We love the stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie, the mystery that is revealed. Mysteries hook us. Did you know the Bible is full of mysteries? It's full of mysteries. You should read it. In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, there was a great mystery. Daniel and his friends find themselves deported to Babylon. They're living in the midst of this foreign land in the middle of all these false gods. Strange, strange things begin to happen. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is haunted by these mysterious dreams. He can't figure them out. He assembles all of his sorcerers, his magicians, his enchanters, everyone he has, and no one can figure out the mystery. No one can solve it until God, from above, reveals the meaning of the mystery to Daniel, and subsequently Daniel communicates it to the king. You see, the point is, there are some mysteries that cannot be revealed by magicians. There are some mysteries that cannot be solved by brilliant, though eccentric, detectives. They must be revealed from on high. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he refers to the gospel as a mystery. How is it? that sinful humanity will be reconciled with the holy God, the creator of the universe. How is it possible? The mystery has now been revealed. God's plan of salvation is clear. Jesus Christ has come. His suffering in our place for our sins, his blood has brought peace. The mystery has been revealed. Paul was commissioned to share that mystery with anyone and everyone who would listen. Now, I told you, Paul had a unique authority. He saw the risen Jesus. He was an apostle. But that responsibility to share the mystery, that's a responsibility that we have today, church. We are called to take the mystery of the good news of the gospel to everyone, everyone God brings into our path. You know, it's interesting that Paul elsewhere says, I'm not ashamed. In Romans chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know it's the power of salvation for anyone who believes. I wonder if you're able to say the same thing. I wonder if you're ashamed of what you believe. How often do you find yourself speaking about the gospel? 
I had a conversation on the phone on Friday night, got an unexpected call from an old gym buddy that I haven't talked to in probably three years. He's got a friend who's going through a tough time, and so he just randomly thought of me and called me up. And in the course of our conversation, one of the things I asked him about this other family, this other friend of his that's going through a hard time, is I said, do you have any idea what they believe? Do you know if they have any hope about the afterlife? You know, what, what are their religious beliefs? And he very quickly said, oh, I, you know, I don't know. We don't talk about those sorts of things, those topics. No, no. What about you? Do you know what the people around you believe? Your coworkers, your neighbors, do you talk about such things? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Perhaps it's not just the children among us who needed to hear about that character trait of boldness this morning. Share the mystery, share the mystery. Now in the next verse, Paul goes on to describe this mystery the mystery of the gospel, as the mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is the mystery? That Christ is in you, the hope of glory. The good news of the gospel is not just that Christ died for you. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also the message of Christ in you, We are so closely identified with Jesus himself. The power of Jesus is within us because as a believer, the Holy Spirit is within us, giving us power and giving us hope. If you have Christ, you have hope, the hope of glory. Do you see that? The hope of glory. The Bible uses the word glory a lot. He uses it in different ways. Sometimes it refers to glory as a place, heaven, and eventually the new creation. And it can refer to heaven as glory because heaven is that place where one day we will experience the unmediated glory of God. And it's the place where we will have glory. We will have glory. Now what in the world does that mean? C.S. Lewis has an essay, probably his most esteemed essay ever, called The Weight of Glory. It's a fairly lengthy piece, but I'm going to boil it down, summarize it for you this morning. It's really good. This is originally a sermon that he preached in 1941. In this sermon, he says that the promises of heaven, the promises of heaven could be boiled down to really five, five headings, that we shall be with Christ, that we shall be like Christ. Christ, that we shall have glory, and there's lots of biblical imagery devoted to making that point, that we shall in some sense be fed or feasted or entertained, and that we shall have some sort of official ruling position, ruling cities, judging angels, and so on. Now, the lion's share of his sermon deals with that third promise, we shall have glory. What does that mean? Glory, Lewis says, suggests two ideas, fame and luminosity. Fame and luminosity. Of the second, he quips, who wishes to become a sort of living electric light bulb? Not very exciting sounding, right? And maybe that's your thought as you ponder this idea of having glory, but as Lewis digs a little deeper into the idea of luminosity, he helps us see that there's much more to it than having the glow of a light bulb. We are drawn to beauty, Lewis says. We're drawn to beauty. The beauty of a sunrise, 
the beauty of a sunset. But really, deep down, we want more than merely to see beauty. We want to have a sense of that beauty. We want to be united with the beauty to become part of it. And that's what it's meant by this second sense of the word glory. See, someday, believer, someday, we won't just see the beauty of the sun. It will be like we've mingled with it. It will be like you've mingled with the beauty of the sun, no longer tainted by our sin. We will shine with glory, illuminosity. But there's another sense, fame. Lewis says we must also understand that to have glory is to have fame, recognition, appreciation. Appreciation, get this, by God himself. By God himself. To say that in heaven we will have glory is to say that we will have appreciation by our maker. The creator will say to his creation, the master will say to his servant, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Lewis puts it like this. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that we shall find approval. We shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. Delighted in as an artist, delights in his work, as a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. So it is. To have glory is to have this luminosity, this beauty that our sin is gone, and it is to have fame, appreciation from God himself. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Remember that first directive, rethink your adversity, suffer well? How can you do that? By remembering the hope of glory. One day, one day, you too will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So share the mystery, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. One final directive in the passage. Rethink our adversity, share the mystery, and move toward maturity. Move toward maturity. Here at the end of the passage, Paul says, Him, the Lord Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul endures this adversity. He shares the mystery of the gospel all for this one goal, the goal of making everyone mature in Christ. Everyone mature in Christ. That means you and me, every believer. And not only does he tell us that's the goal, he shows us the path of how to get there. It involves teaching. Christ-centered teaching. Paul proclaims, he preaches the gospel. He warns or admonishes everyone who will listen. And he teaches. He teaches everyone the gospel message. There can be no spiritual maturity without a regular intake of Christ-centered teaching. Let me say that again. There can be no spiritual maturity without a regular intake of Christ-centered teaching. 
The person who goes all week without eating anything and then one morning of the week finally caves and eats everything in sight, that person is not healthy. He or she has an eating disorder. Sure, we need this time on Sunday mornings, the public proclamation of God's word, corporate worship. Absolutely, we need this. We must prioritize this every week. But you also need occasional opportunities for admonition, teaching, connection groups, for example. Have you found a connection group? And of course, we also need personal, daily times of Bible study, prayer. We need that regular intake of God's word. That's the path, Paul says, toward spiritual maturity. I wonder, have you drifted from this path? I know there's times in my life when I do that might surprise you to hear. There's a little book I remember reading many years ago by a professor at Southern Seminary named Donald Whitney. Just a small but handy little book called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. And I pull this book off the shelf about once a year or so and I ask myself these questions because they're so good at helping me see where I have erred from this path towards spiritual maturity. I want to toss the questions out this morning, just very briefly. I'm not going to say much about them. I just want you to think on them, dwell on them for just a moment. And as we apply these questions to ourselves, we'll get a pretty good idea of how we're doing on this road toward spiritual maturity. Here they are. Ten questions to diagnose your spiritual health. First, do I thirst for God? Do I sense deep within me a growing thirst, hunger, desire, intimacy with God, that's what I want most. Second, am I governed increasingly by God's word? Do I submit to the teaching of the Bible, especially to the parts I don't like? Like all this stuff about suffering and rejoicing in it, what? Third, am I more loving? More loving than I once was? More loving toward my spouse, children, Co-workers, friends, enemies. Fourth, am I more sensitive to God's presence and leading? When faced with the tough decisions, which job to take, where to live, who to marry, do I slow down and listen for the leading of the Holy Spirit? Fifth, do I have a growing concern for the needs of others? Do I find myself often thinking of other people, giving to the needs of other people, giving regularly, sacrificially to the work of gospel ministry? Sixth, do I delight in the church? Do I love this group of imperfect people called the body of Christ? Seventh, are habits of faith increasingly important to me? things like Bible study, prayer, corporate worship. Do I prioritize these? Or do I prioritize the boat? Sports, the gym, travel. Eighth, do I grieve over my sin? Does my sin truly disturb me? Does it break my heart as it breaks God's heart? Ninth, am I a quicker forgiver? Well, that's a good little expression, isn't it? Do I tend to hold a grudge when people hurt me? 
And 10th, do I long for heaven in the presence of Jesus? Or is my grip on the things of this world so tight that rarely do I even think of the hope of glory? Now, if you're convicted by these questions, and I assure you, you're not alone, what should you do? Sit there paralyzed in your guilt? No, of course not. Of course not. What you need is faith and repentance. All of the Christian life is faith and repentance. Remember, we've learned that in this series. In faith, look to Jesus the one who was perfectly governed by God's word, the one who was most loving, most forgiving. He was most loving for us. He demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross so you know it's safe to go to him. You know it's safe to turn back to him. So in faith, look to him and repent. Turn from whatever it is that has caused apathy to develop in your life. Turn from whatever it is that has distracted you away from this path towards spiritual maturity. And as you repent, as you turn back to Jesus, know that Jesus himself is the one who gives you the power to do so. That's where Paul leaves us in this passage. Look at the last verse of the chapter. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul is teaching us here at the end of the verse, at the end of the chapter, he's teaching us how to deal with difficult things in life. Whatever the affliction is that you're facing, the adversity, the difficulty, the complexity that you've encountered, whatever it is, Paul is teaching us how to deal with those difficult things. And notice what he doesn't do. First of all, he doesn't just sit there in fear. He's not inactive. He says, I toil, I struggle. But notice as well, he's not self-confident. He's not self-confident. Both parts of verse 29 are important. I toil, I struggle with all of Christ's energy. He's the one who supplies everything I need. I'm not doing this on my own. Yes, I'm active. Yes, I'm struggling. But I know that I'm not the one who has the power, the energy here. Jesus is supplying everything I need. As I was studying this passage this past week, I was reminded of an acronym that I heard many, many years ago by John Piper. John Piper was faithful pastor at Bethlehem uh, Baptist Church for 30 years or so in Minneapolis. Now he's a Baptist, so he loves his acronyms and alliterations, but this one is quite good. So good, in fact, that you must remember it. You might even want to tattoo it somewhere on your body. It's that good. Piper says when we're, in, when we're facing difficult things in life, we must respond to them with aptat. A-P-T-A-T. A, admit. You must admit, Lord Jesus, I cannot do this on my own. 
I cannot. I will not even try. Admit. P, you must pray. Pray and ask Christ to supply everything you lack. I need your power. I need your energy. I need your guidance. T, trust. Trust that Jesus heard your prayer, that he is indeed with you every step of the way. A, act. You must act. You must take that next step. You must do what needs to be done. And then T, thank. Thank Jesus, who was indeed with you all along, who worked powerfully in and through you, accomplishing his perfect will, whatever that might mean. So friends, I ask you, what's the difficulty you're facing? What's your affliction? What's your adversity? You could run from it in fear. You could rush into it with self-confidence. Neither of those will work. There's a third way, a better way. What Paul shows us here in this passage. Struggle, toil with all of his energy, with all of his power. Admit, pray, trust, act, and then think. In fact, let's thank Jesus now for all that he's done for us. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do come before you so incredibly grateful this morning for your sacrifice in our place for our sins, for your bodily resurrection. You have defeated sin and death for all your people. Lord Jesus, this morning as we have opened your word and we have heard from you, your spirit that you have placed within us is convicting us. We know there are areas of life where we have become apathetic, distracted. We've veered from that path of spiritual maturity. We're not prioritizing your word, teaching, preaching, personal Bible study. We're just not. Forgive us. Lord Jesus, we look to you with faith. We know it's safe to come to you. You've demonstrated your love for us. That love will never change. You love us on our best days and on our worst. That's the good news. So we ask for your help this morning. Help us to repent, to turn from the things from which we need to turn. Help us to reorder our lives, our days our families. We want to be mature in you. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we remember all that you have done for us. 
And we say thank you. Thank you for the hope of glory. Oh, what a hope it is. We love you. In your name we pray.